everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. Today we are talking about careers outside of cardiology. And we are talking to two people who are working in industry. One is working in a early stage biotech startup. That's Dr. Matt Daniels. And the other doctor that we're talking to is Jennifer Franca, who is the Chief Medical Officer for Cardiology at Philips. They're currently writing a series of articles about careers outside cardiology, which will be in heart and will be open access for a month after this podcast comes out. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks very much, both of you, for joining me today. Uh, maybe I can ask you to introduce yourself for the heart audience. Should we start with Jen? Who are you? Where do you work? And uh, what do you do there? Yeah, sure, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so my name is Jennifer, Jennifer Franke. I'm a cardiologist and the chief medical officer for cardiology at Philips. What do I do? I've moved into industry about nine years ago, and we can talk later about that. But yeah, I live in Germany with my two children and husband and puppy. And yeah. Fantastic. Tell us about yourself, Matt. Can you introduce yourself for the heart audience for people that don't know you? My name's uh, Matthew Daniels. I trained in the UK system as a clinical academic, was most recently working for the Manchester University Hospitals, but three months ago chose to come to the US to work for a startup biotech company called Sana, and they decided to close the program that I was attached to. So I'm currently, like a minister without portfolio, sat in the US by myself. <laughs> well, let's start with that uh, cliffhanger of a career story, Matt. Can you talk us through kind of... Um, Let's start at maybe a fellowship sort of level in, in cardiology. Where did you, where were you working and what kind of research were you doing and what attracted you to move away from uh, standard cardiology, should we say? Yeah, so I did the Cambridge MBPhD and was working in oncology. Um, for cardiology training, I was in Oxford as the university clinical lecturer and then Wellcome Trust Intermediate Fellow, making stem cell models of inherited heart disease um, and applying some of the imaging techniques that I developed to study oncology um, onto those cardiomyocytes. So looking at ways to see how they twitch, how strong they are and, and that kind of stuff. I'd always seen that as a bridge to ultimately using these stem cell derivatives as a therapeutic product because we can make heart cells in addition. Your body can't make heart cells in yourself. Um, but we would need to be able to have ways to study those things to make sure that what we were putting in worked well in the lab and then worked well in the body. Um, and that's kind of what happened that the company came along and started recruiting me in like January 2021. And there was this very long courtship and discussions around, you know, contracts and visas and, and so on. Um, and it was the prospect of being able to deliver a new class of medicines to patients that got me to jump ship. Um, unfortunately, the, the kind of the naivety or the, the unfortunate situation is that biotech has been laying off 20 to 40 percent of workforce. And I didn't think that would apply to me in this role in this company, but ultimately it did. And can you just give us a bit more of the clinical background? Because you were also clinically active when you were alongside the stem cell research. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I did quite a, a varied portfolio as a clinical academic. So I was pretty good on inherited cardiac conditions, adult congenital heart disease, and some of the interventions that go with congenital heart disease, particularly in the atrial septum. Uh, the poster over the back of me is the first in Europe for one of the um, Abbott devices that we were asked to do because we got a leading practice. And that's how I met Jen, by the way, through that forum. 
Fantastic. And maybe we can skip ahead to why you wanted to leave that setup that you had. So you mentioned you were contacted by a biotech company. What, what was it that attracted you to moving away from clinical academic cardiology? Yeah, so there's a, a few like push factors. So, I mean, at the moment, the NHS isn't the best place to be working in. I think a lot of people are, are observing post-pandemic that, you know, it's not um, where they expected to be in their, their mid-40s. Um, I think the grant funding situation in the UK is is taxing um, and certainly nobody's got the kind of money to, to prime a project like delivering a, a stem cell therapy to the heart, uh, particularly not at my career stage. Um, and so the thing that the company had was both money, but also a lot of human capital and know-how in cell production. So they've really got a fantastic ability to make um, heart cells at massive scale and purity. And that's always the thing that had held us back in the UK academic sector, because we were spending all our time making cells and didn't have any time to analyze them. So it was the, the push factors from the UK environment and the pull factors on the, the US side. And how did you find the transition? What what did you miss from your day-to-day job in the UK? And what did you enjoy about your new role? This is obviously before uh, your new role came to an end. I have to say, moving within the NHS is not fun, right? You get a, a rotor the day before you start somewhere. You're not sure if you're on payroll. Nobody really helps you with relocation. And, you know, it's really a very basic setup. On the other hand, the company relocates you professionally they employ professional people to do it they spend an awful lot of money on on trying to make your transition better including you know sending somebody out to look for a, an apartment for you um and and the remuneration you know that's linked to that is set up to try and minimize the disruption on your personal life i'm sure there was more to your question but that, I've out <laughs> steam at that point presumably you won't do any clinical work in the us is that correct so the plan was to transition into a clinical role. Um, it was kind of an 80-20 job that I'd signed up for with industry. And the plan was going to be to get the first year with industry sorted out. It's a new system, new expectations, and then uh, pick up clinical activity in, in parallel with that. Um, unfortunately, neither of those things will happen. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm searching for opportunities as we speak which I'm sure they won't be far behind given your uh, your stellar track record. And the reach of this massive podcast. I mean, this is just <laughs> going to make me globally famous. It's the only reason you've come on, isn't it, today, uh, to look for a new position. <laughs> Indeed. Jennifer, let's talk to you then. How about your career story? Um, I, I assume you were clinically active as a cardiologist before the transition to industry. Where, where were you working and, and what kind of level did you get to before you decided to move into industry? Yeah, so I, I think I was very fortunate. I actually, I, I started in cardiology when I was 22. I found a side job in a cath lab, and that went into being the study coordinator um, for that professor and um, his scientific secretary for his international conferences. That's also where I met Matt, I think, for the very first time. Um, so I had really early exposure to cardiology, and then for me, it was quite natural that I um, went into cardiology training, and um, I did that in Frankfurt and in Heidelberg in Germany. And there I focused on, of course, everything interventional, but also heart failure and cardiovascular disease. And that um, yeah, went on to consultant. I also ran the biobank for cardiology um, and for heart uh, and for um, cardiac surgery at the University of Heidelberg. And then I took the first step into industry and I went into business development at Fresenius. So they wanted to step into cardiology, specifically into heart failure. And I um, helped them design a therapy. So they had a device, but a device itself 
doesn't create a therapy. You really have to know how to use the device. And so for the very first time, I ran a, um, a European clinical trial, which is very different than to, you know, just being on the study side and um, a large registry that uh, encompassed uh, Europe and Asia Pacific. And after that, I was invited to be the global medical director for embegliflozin um, for heart failure. And at that time, it was still considered a diabetes drug. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. We had to prove, yeah, <laughs> we had to prove that it could do much more. And that was fascinating. I, though I loved my job at Fresenius, I thought this is something that happens maybe once in a lifetime. Right. Um, probably every 10 years, you know, something like that happens. That there, There's this huge discovery. And I, for myself, I kind of compared that to aspirin or to penicillin. It was something that I had to do if I was invited. So that was great fun and it turned out positive. It wasn't clear in the very beginning, but it was, um, as we all know, I think very positive in the end. And finally, you know, uh, a solution for HEFPEF, very exciting. And then I was invited to be a chief medical officer, so CMO for cardiology at Philips, so moving into the digital space. Um, and if you think about the different roles in industry, probably chief medical officer is typically, if you stay on the medical track, I think the the highest role in terms of hierarchy that, that you can go into. And um, I, I just had to take that opportunity. It also um, let me really, you know, innovate with all those software developers and people understanding a lot about a deep machine learning and, and really, you know, moving the needle in medicine in general, but then specialized on, on cardiovascular. I thought that is something I just have to learn and be exposed to. So that's where I am now. And what is your day-to-day look like Jen if there is a typical day are you are you sitting at a desk are you visiting collaborators are you designing algorithms what are you doing what sort of gets you up in the morning well I I don't go to the office that often I must say and if I go to the office then it's to meet customers at the office because we're showing them some innovation or um, we're going really into the research labs with them and asking for feedback um so um yeah if I'm not meeting customers if I'm not at a hospital um and if I'm not um, in one of those research labs, then then I work from home. Yeah, fantastic. That's a typical day, but it's a mixture of talking to researchers, software developers, customers, business people, um, yeah, regulatory people. It's 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 a big mixed bag, I guess. Yeah, and I'm assuming you're not clinically active anymore. Is that correct? You're not seeing patients. No, I could actually. Okay. Yeah, I, I could. And in Germany, you don't really lose your license. I could, but I've always um, studied something next to working. So at first, I studied health economics while I was at Fresenius and at Brunner Ingelheim. Um, and now I'm completing an MBA next to working at Philips. So um, um, I think afterwards, I, I would invest a day in clinical work. I think that would be fun again. Yeah. Um, but now I always made sure that I was studying something. And um, for you, again, how was the transition when you first moved to Fresenius from your clinical role? Did you find it difficult? Was it straightforward? Uh, was there a lot of adjustment to do? It felt really good. It felt really good. It, it showed me that I was I was doing something with an international impact. I, I do, of course, miss the clinical team. I missed that um, clinical intuition that you have, you know, when you work for many, many weeks, you know, on an ICU you have this this pure intuition. You understand all the variables, all the parameters at once, and that's something you lose, I think, quite quickly. Mm -hmm. 
but what I gained for sure is the, the feeling of, you know, making a, a greater impact, really like moving bigger, bigger pieces of the puzzle and really changing things that really need change um, within medicine. And, and that transition just felt very good. And Matt, I'm assuming the same sort of thought process applies to you as well. The, the idea that you can impact far more people at a biotech startup in your case, or obviously at Philips in Jennifer's case, is that something that you took into account rather than treating the individual patient in front of you in clinic? Yeah, I think that's for some people, you know, turning the wheel is absolutely fine and they get really good at turning the wheel. Um, but other people are driven by something else and they want to invent a new wheel and and try and open up a, a new area. Um, and I guess the, um, the the difference between us, if we compare empagliflozin to, to cell-based therapy, is the relative times at which we've joined those processes you know the the drug the chemical entity has been described it was in humans already whereas everything i joined was was preclinical and and still maybe years away from clinic so there is a kind of um i guess a risk reward paradigm here that you know it, the further away you are from clinic the more risk you're taking um but potentially uh the rewards can be greater although you know in my case risk has beaten reward at the moment at the moment, but yeah, as you say, it's. Um, can we ask about your plans? Are you planning to to stay within biotech? Are you planning to return to the UK, or is it still a very early um, stage conversations you're at? Yeah, at the moment, I'm going through kind of the five stages of grief, so it's a mixture of shock and anger and all the rest. Um, but I have to say that aside from the you know the business decision to stop the cardiac program, that overall kind of weight off your shoulders and the the horizons that you see um is enlightening and it is inspiring and it does allow you to do something different um i think it's probably fair to say that the industry road is more bumpy you know people will make business decisions that can impact whether you know the the team individually could be successful but if it doesn't quite fit the business planning and the you know how much money's in the bank then people look at that as its own thing and, and that's the, the shocking sort of side of it whereas in healthcare you know patients are going to come in through the front door at 8 a.m in the morning and they're going to keep doing that until 5 p.m and whether you're particularly good or, or not you know it's just so there's always going to be a market for doctors as my friend ollie Ryder said just before i left you know whatever happens to you we're not going to end up selling ice cream um, <laughs> exactly there are always going to be hospitals around on there and biotechs well, you know, cardiovascular medicine is cardiovascular medicine, right? There's plenty of people with it and there's quite a lot we can do for it. Yeah, exactly. And what about uh, a question to both of you, really? Presumably one of the cons of moving into industry is some loss of autonomy. Um, I'm thinking maybe particularly with um, moving into maybe a pharma company as opposed to a startup biotech where presumably you have a huge amount of autonomy. Is that something that you just have to learn to live with, that you're a cog in an enormous machine? Uh, maybe I'll address this to Jen, first of all. Gosh, I, I do think it's the opposite, if, if I may. <laughs> yeah, please disagree. Absolutely. I, I think university hospitals are very hierarchical. Um, there's not much you can decide on if you look into your diary. You know, patients come in, like Matt said, in the morning, eight o'clock. Someone scheduled that for you. It's probably different in the UK system, um, but especially in Germany, it was all externally driven and um and then when you think of cardiovascular care you you hardly knew when the day in the cath lab would end 
Um, maybe yeah. in the outpatient setting you could, but um, when you have that acute setting around you, you never know how your day would be. Um, and now I think what, what made me very happy in the beginning in the industry is that I had full control of my calendar. Okay. I could do things that I always wanted to do. I could read a book in kindergarten if I wanted to. I would just block an hour in the morning. That was never possible in the hospital. I was actually thinking more from a kind of academic point of view in terms of the research question that you're pursuing. Maybe this is more relevant to, to Matt than yourself. But that, I mean, that's amazing to hear that you do have plenty of autonomy. And also the projects you work on. I think yeah. you, you are allowed to decide where you spend your time in most cases. I, I think that's wonderful. Matt, do you have anything to say about that in terms of autonomy versus uh, being part of a company structure in my case you know it's really clear what we were trying to do you know we had um a cell manufacturer team and then a preclinical uh team for doing the, the sort of the, the animal work so we're going to get these cells into these animals and see what they do um and everybody in the team is on board with that we haven't kind of got you know people who are trying to to do other things at the same time um and i guess that's you know for me it was a really great fit it was a fantastic role it was like a hand in the glove um but you know i'd been selected out of a global search for somebody who could really do that mm. um and, and often i think you find in hospitals that you um you know people aren't necessarily picking you for your particular niche skills and niche interests and that's where the kind of the tension comes um you know when you have to do consultant of the week or, or something that you kind of think well anybody could really do that I mean I think the exposure of you know like COVID ward cover that was a, a thing that kind of lots of people with professional ambitions are kind of like well that, I didn't really sign up for that yeah sort of crisis management wasn't it yeah so I, I think the the point is that if you were hired to a role that you weren't particularly well suited for then you may find that you're being kind of told to do stuff that becomes not enjoyable. Um, and industry, the model there seems to be, if that's happening to you, find a different job that gets you back on track. Yeah. yeah. Jen, I mean, you, you've kind of taken steps between three companies. Do you agree with that? Disagree with that? Yeah, and I must say, in my case, I could always go back to those roles that I had before. I thought they were very enjoyable, but I, I do see people who, for some reason, um, don't find the perfect match in a certain company. But typically, these companies are so big that they will find something else in the company, a different uh, therapeutic area or just a different role within the same therapeutic area. And I, uh, you do see these people kind of move to these different spaces within a company. And and for me, if I would move to a different space, it would be to test, for example, my business skills to say, you know, I've, I've climbed up the medical tree and let's see if I could also, you know, hold a, a, a business budget or so or develop something again. I must say just from the outside, it does seem much more common that folks move between jobs once you're within industry in the broadest sense of the word than it is, say, in a NHS yeah. Uh, consultant uh, role you know people tend to stay in those for life although it is changing um, but I would say that's more common would you ag agree with that yeah I think what we can see now is that there's like uh, I don't want to say a top tier exodus but there's you know people who are getting to let's say the the 50 55 year old mark you know these are the ones getting headhunted for chief medical officer roles in in big companies if you look at lots of the device companies it's a Brit who's holding the the chair there and there are probably reasons for it i think to, to jen's point about moving within companies obviously the company has to be big enough 
to have other roles. So, you know, Philips and uh, Boring are, are huge, right? The company I joined has a headcount or had a headcount of about 500, and there were 20 in the cardiac team. So, you know, they brought me in to do a cardiac role. If they don't want a cardiac program, they don't need a cardiac team. Um, and the the company's so small that those additional roles, um, you know, aren't there. So when when you are thinking about you know transitioning to industry, it's the size of the company is an important uh, thing to consider. And I guess a general rule may be that you would take a lower position in a bigger company because it kind of has a bit more stability and it has more opportunity if things go not to plan. So you know, lots of people kind of try and say, what's my value? Um, where do I fit? Um, and and I think you know, value is different uh, in a small niche area or in a a bigger um, a bigger pot. I mean, that's really good advice. Uh, Jen, have you got any advice for people who are considering moving into industry in, in some aspect? I know that you, yourself and Matt are writing a really nice series for Heart, uh, which will cover this in far more depth than we can go into today. But where should people look for opportunities um, to transition into industry? Yeah, I think they can use the contacts that they have and maybe build their network within industry simply to find out which roles actually exist. Mm. Uh, because oftentimes the only touch points we have are the sales rep or maybe an MSL or something. And those aren't the only roles clearly for, for medical people and clinicians in, in industry. There are, you know, uh, far higher roles with, they could use as a starting point. Um, and then they have to find out, you know, something about their understand, I think, their personality and also their background. Are they more research-oriented? Uh, would they be happy, um, you know, thinking about patient safety the entire day? Are they good in messaging? Would they uh, be comfortable working together with um, marketing and market access and a brand team developing, for example, a drug? Um, and, and there are all sorts of roles like that. Um, or would they even, you know, try out a business role? I've seen medical people move into marketing roles um, without, you know, any formal education in, in marketing. Um, but they can do that with their clinical expertise as well if they have the personality to do that. Um, and also, I think, just read a lot of job descriptions. They are very detailed in terms of the skills that you need to bring with you. Um, and they would never say, you know, it's only one bullet point, you have to be a cardiologist. They will have a list of things that you should um, potentially bring with you to fulfill the needs of uh, whichever company that is. Brilliant. Anything else you want to share, Matt? Yeah, I think the last point is is really important because often as clinicians, you know, we're training ourselves to deliver patient care. We value ourselves because of the care that we can deliver. But in a industry role and as you say the articles will look at what different roles they may be actually the ability to provide clinical care isn't the thing that they're hiring you for that they're more hiring you for the different you know that there are two shos on the ward if you like and you're not the same um so it's the differences between the two people that is what industry is really going to decide on not whether you know you completed your ttos on time or you can do a left and right heart cath in 15 minutes you know there would be some jobs that may focus on that like a, a single product company would probably like to hire the world's expert on using their particular widget um to to champion it you know but most of the company roles aren't 
perseverating on on the clinical uh, skills that you've got that's just kind of like an assumed it's yeah. like a nice to have but it's an office cooler um you know mum's just had a heart attack what's going to happen next type thing it's not the main driver for, for industry to hire you what is the main driver then seeing as you've gone down that rabbit hole what are the main drivers well in my case it was the ability to understand two heart failure populations inherited or congenital heart disease that account for half of the world's cardiac transplants and at the same time to speak stem cell and and stem cell cardiomyocyte and, and understanding those so kind of pull those two um, areas together and you know the, the company searches for a year and, and I'm the only person that they can find appointable. So there aren't many people who are in that space. Right, um, right. But there also aren't many companies looking for it. <laughs> With respect, you don't have to be as unique as you, Matt D, to find roles. As Jen says, you know, there are many aspects of a doctor's personality and skill set that are attractive to to industry. Would that be fair to say, Jennifer? Yes, I, I think, like I said in the beginning, I think I'm quite a mixed bag. In some teams, I use my health economic expertise. In some teams, um, it's more important that I have a full understanding of a care continuum of, of a certain disease to design a pathway. Um, sometimes it's strategic skills in terms of how to position a product. Um, and if I think back to the work in brand teams, uh, it could even be, do I understand like these slight differences in messaging? And am I willing to discuss color? Am I willing to discuss the color of the packaging? Um, because it means a lot to marketing folks. Yeah. Or am I a doctor who does not care about these things and have completely no opinion on them? So I think those are the things that um, people who are interested in moving to industry should, you know, reflect on, you know, what do I feel comfortable, you know, with and what are maybe the additional skills that I've attained over the years next to my clinical skills um, that maybe other people have not attained in that time. Brilliant. Well, it's been Amazing to chat to you, Matt. Have you got one last point that you want to leave the listeners with? I was just going to ask, is that why there are so many white boxes in medicine? <laughs> because the, <laughs> they couldn't engage the doctor in choosing the colour of the packet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Boehringer Ingelheim. I can't remember what colour the packet is for, for Emperor. But uh, did you leave your mark there? Have they got a nice purple colour or something? <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it's been so good to talk to you both. Um, there's tons more that we can talk about, but what I'll do is direct folks to the articles that you've written. Um, I think one is already out and two are coming out soon as we discuss this um, in mid-December 2022. But uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, James. Thanks, James.